0: Good morning. Oops, I see a lot more faces here. So, can I have a show of hands? Who was here for the first talk today at Sunday School? Okay, thank you. There's quite a few of you. So, uh, for the benefit of those who are not here earlier on, um, you might notice I sound different from most of you, and you can already tell that I speak quite fast. So, hang on tight and try to stay with me, because I have a lot to share for you right now as well. So I'll be speaking about creation, impacting our culture. Why are we speaking about creation? Why is this important? <coughs> but first off, let me give a short introduction for those who are not here. I sound different from most of you because I come from the other side of the world. I come from Singapore. And Singapore is that little dot you see on the map there. So I work for Creation Ministries International. So who are we? We are an international ministry. We exist in seven countries around the world. <coughs> and Creation Ministries, as far as I know, we actually Employ more PhD scientists than any other Christian ministry. So every year we go to churches to give over 1,000 talks about creation, evolution, and things like that to equip you guys with the answers that a lot of us, uh, to the questions that a lot of us have. So I work for the U.S. office, and our office is in Georgia, Atlanta, uh, and that's my family there. So Creation Ministries International, as I say, um, we have over 40 years of research, 15,000 articles on our website. But when people ask me to give a summary of creation ministries, I like to say that we are an information ministry. What do I mean by that? Well, how many of us have ever had questions like that? Have you ever wondered? Hasn't science proven evolution and millions of years to be fact? And is there evidence of a worldwide flood? We saw some more of that this morning, but we'll talk more about that now too. And don't the fossils prove millions of years? They got this evolution and millions of years to create. And the big one, if God is a God of love, why is there death and suffering? Can I have a show of hands? If at some point in time in your life you ever had questions like that, raise your hands. Okay, do me a favor, leave your hands up there. Okay, just take a quick look, okay? the hands down. That's almost 90% of us, 95%. Most of us at some point in time in our life, we have questions like that. And that's what I mean when I say we are an information ministry. We exist to provide answers to these questions that almost every single one of us have. So that you can use this to reach out to your friends, your families, make a difference so that your faith may be strengthened. So as as I said, we have a website with over 40 years of research, 15,000 articles. It's creation.com. So it's a free resource. Go there, type your question into the search engine. It's likely there will be a reply waiting for you. And if you do not have anything answering a question, you can always submit a question to us through the website as well. But before I start my presentation, I would like to introduce a free email newsletter. So what's that? This is just something we send out to our supporters once a week. We do not sell you information, we do not spam you, just to update you with the latest news. So what's that for? Imagine you get home from work and your neighbor comes up to you and shows you the newspaper. Well, that's assuming we still read newspapers, right? And it says there, the latest ape man has been found. And your neighbour say, ha, how do you answer that? if you're part of this email newsletter, it's very likely at the end of the week we will have a reply waiting for you. Just forward our reply to your friend. They can use a stepping stone to share the gospel with them. <coughs> so if you're interested in that, in, in a while we have our database and we just get a form, just put in your name and your email address and when we get to the office, we will put that in the database and we'll send you a link where you can download a DVD that you see here. This is a two-part DVD that covers a talk like what you hear today but in more detail as well. So volunteers, if you want, you can hand out the sign-up sheets. <coughs> Just name and email address. As so they're doing that, let me get into my presentation. Well, um, I need to clarify something, right? So I do not, I, I'm not a doctor, but I have um, degrees in, in theology, in, um, biotechnology, genetics, and evolutionary biology. And when people hear that, they'll always ask me this question. Why would a Christian have a degree in evolutionary biology? You see, I did my science degree in Australia. I spent four years there. That's where I did my science degrees. (coughs) And this is the streets of Brisbane. And when I was there, I was actively involved not only with creation ministries, but also with an open-air street preaching ministry. And so as far as I was able, every Saturday, 9 p.m. to midnight, I'll be on the streets sharing the gospel with people. And as far as I can remember, for every single week that I was out on the streets, I would have at least one person every single week asking me a question related to creation and evolution. And I'm sure if any of you have been doing street evangelism, you know this is the same thing with you here. The number one question always has to deal with creation and evolution. Why? Why is it that this is the biggest intellectual excuse for why people are not willing to consider the Bible's word of God? Because it really boils down to this question. Can we trust what the Bible says in Genesis? See, if the Bible is wrong in Genesis about what it says about creation, a garden of Eden the Bible is wrong there why trust the rest of the Bible? why trust what it says about the virgin birth? why trust what it says about the resurrection? or your future hope and salvation it boils down to the authority of God's word and that's why we're addressing this topic here today many times it's like this this boy he goes to school does he learn about creation or evolution? evolution sometimes he talks about millions of years that's essentially the same idea here and that's all he hears one side of the story he goes to school, and his good friend Johnny, right? So Johnny tries to preach the gospel. And Johnny says, hey, look, Jesus died for sinners. The Bible says so. And he turned around. He said, oh, come on, the Bible isn't true. I mean, hasn't science proven evolution? Where do dinosaurs fit in the Bible? Don't the fossils prove millions of years? And is the Bible wrong with science? The same type of questions that almost every one of us raised our hands earlier on. And Johnny says, I don't know. Do you think Johnny's witnessing will be effective? But it's worse than that because now Johnny has all these questions. Uh, Who does he ask? Mom, Dad, can you answer these questions? And does he get any answers? Sadly, most of the time, the answer is no. See, sometimes we get very sad testimonies written to us. Here's one testimony from um, a college chaplain. Notice what he says. He says, this constant brainwashing, he's talking about the idea of millions of years and evolution. This constant brainwashing destroys the faith of many Christians each year. Our surveys indicate that 80% of first-year students believe in a God who is there. By the second year, only 15% believe in God. (laughs) This is in Australia. In the United States, major denominations have done similar surveys and all come to the same conclusion. A recent Josh Barnard survey tells us that 64% of kids who grew up in church these are all kids with a church background. 64% of them, when they get to college, they leave the church, never to return. Southern Baptist Convention tells us 88% of kids who grew up in church leave the church, never to return, when they get to college. Lifeway, research, 70%. Assembly of God, 66 George Banner, 61 What figure is acceptable? When we see something like that, there are two in three kids who grew up in church, They leave the church when they get to college. We need to ask another question, why? What's the reason? Yes, I understand, yes, the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts a person. But if you ask these kids why they left the church, what's the excuse that they give? What do you think it is? A couple of years ago, we went to the colleges in the States and we interviewed hundreds of students and we called out the Fall Out Project. (coughs) So what is this? We ask all these kids, thanks, thank you very much, this one question. Do you grow up in church? Do you have a church background? If they say no, we leave them them aside. We just wanted to look at kids who grew up in church. So to all these kids who grew up in church, we ask the second question. Do you believe in creation or evolution? The vast majority said evolution. And so to this group that believe in evolution, we ask the third question. Have you ever been shown how science supports the Bible? Every single one said no. And a final question, do you still attend church? We saw that every one of these kids who grew up in church and now believe in evolution and were never taught to defend the faith. Every single one of them except for one guy no longer attends church. And then we went to the group that believed in creation. Have you been shown how science supports the Bible? Everyone said yes. Do you still attend church? And every single one of them said yes. I think before us we saw the biggest intellectual excuse. Remember, I did not say cost; say excuse for why they are not willing to consider the Bible as the Word of God boils down to this whole issue of Genesis, because it boils down to whether we can trust what the Bible says in the in, what the, the Bible says about the fall, entrance of fall in the sin, and why we need a savior, and so on. Um, George Barna researched another one in two thousand eighteen shows that the two biggest reasons why millennials reject the Christian faith. Number one, science refutes the Bible. That means evolution. Number two, refusal to believe in fairy tales. Genesis, right? These two is actually the same reason. Boils down the Genesis. Surveys after surveys tells us this is the case. <coughs> so people come along and say that if this is an issue, why don't we just say that God used evolution? Right? Let's not stir up controversy. But that doesn't work. So here you're looking at Carl Gibbonson. And Dr. Carl Gibbonson here, he's a former vice president of BioLogos. Anyone heard of BioLogos? <laughs> so what's BioLogos? BioLogos is an organization that promotes the idea that God uses evolution. It gives millions of dollars to schools, to Bible colleges, if they're willing to teach evolution in their classrooms. And the vice president, notice what he says. He said, instead scientifically informed young evangelicals, that means those who are taught evolution, became so alienated from their home churches that they walk away, taking their enlightenment with them. Many of my most talented former students no longer attend any church, and some have completely abandoned their faith tradition. He thought that by teaching evolution, it strengthened their faith, but it's the opposite. His best students all left the church. Sometimes people think, Teaching evolution helps. We show it doesn't work. But another group of Christians who say, the Bible teaches creation, I believe it. And I always say, that's wonderful. Because the word of God has to be our foundation. But it's not enough to stop there. Yes, you believe the Bible. But the Bible also tells us that we don't stop there. We train ourselves to train ourselves to tear down worldviews, to tear down arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Yes, we believe the word of God. But you don't stop there. You train yourself, equip yourself to defend the faith so that you can make a difference in your church, in your families, in your friends. If you want to be a faithful Christian, make a commitment to train yourself to defend the faith in this area. I love science. Who loves science here? Anyone? I'll speak about science. But before we speak about science, we need to understand something about the nature of science. So here's the quiz Who has more evidence, creation or evolution? Who says evolution? Who says creation? Okay, who says the same? Who says, I don't know? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll try to rephrase that question. you see where I'm going with that. So here I have a fossil clamp in my hands. So two scientists, one creationist, one evolutionist, when they're looking at this clamp before your very eyes, are they looking at the same fossil or different fossil? The same. Two astronomers looking at a star, are they looking at the same star or different star? So let me ask you, who has the most evidence, creation or evolution? It's actually the same. We have the same fossils, the same scientific data. But data doesn't speak for itself. It must always be interpreted. And the reason we come to a different conclusion is not because of different science. We come to a different conclusion because we have a different starting worldview. And the worldview is what causes us to interpret that differently, coming to a different conclusion. (laughs) But I always believe that when you have the right starting worldview, the Word of God, you look at the science, everything will make much more sense. But we have the same fossils, the same evidence. See, when I say science, what comes to mind? For a lot of people, you think of technology, right? Laptops, airplanes, projectors. But we get these things from what we call operational science or experimental science. And Operational science or experimental science is science that is in the present. In the present, is science that is observable, science that is repeatable, and science that is testable. What do I mean by that? Here's an illustration. So here's a tiny ball. If I let this ball, if I let go of it, what do you think will happen? Drops to the ground, right? You can do an experiment. If you do not believe me, you can do an experiment over and over again. And experimental science is what gives us the technology we see today. Is it subjective? Yes, it is to a certain extent, but you can always use experiments. And experiments has the benefit of removing hypotheses or ideas that are not consistent with reality. But when we're dealing with creation and evolution, we're dealing with a very different type of science. (coughs) We're dealing with what we call historical science. Historical science is different because it's not in the present, it's not observable, not repeatable, not testable. What do I mean by that? I grew up in Singapore. So Singapore, during World War II, we were under the Japanese occupation. So I wasn't alive back then. So if I want to find out what life was like under the Japanese, what can I do? I can go to a library, right? Read some books, go on the internet, do a Google search. Or my my grandmother used to tell me first-hand accounts of what life was like under the Japanese. But you see, whatever I do is in the present. I cannot go back in time and carry out an experiment back in time. All I can do is take bits and pieces of information in the present, piece together a story of what happened back then. And because I don't have the benefits of experiments, it's going to be far more subjective. Another historian from Japan might look at the same piece of evidence, coming to a different conclusion. <coughs> a couple of months ago, I was listening to a lecture by, by this professor. He was telling me about how he he was telling me about how he went to this um, museum in Japan, a World War II museum in Okinawa. And they have all these books open up, and all these books were describing the same incident. But the books from Japan, from Korea, from English, from different countries, every single one of them told a different story based on their different nationalistic tendencies. But all the same evidence. See, it's the world that interprets the evidence bringing you to different conclusion. And that's one reason why historians disagree among themselves all the time. Historical science is far more subjective. <coughs> and we need to keep that in mind. Historical science is different from the science that give us the technology that we see today so skeptics come along say oh this this category historical science operational science that is something that you creationists come up with right No, not really the case let's look at what one of the leading evolutionists in the last century actually says that's uh, Ernest Meyer right and he says this for example Darwin introduced historicity into science Evolutionary biology, in contrast with physics and chemistry, is a historical science. The evolution's attempts to explain events and processes that have already taken place. Laws and experiments are what? Inappropriate techniques for the explication of such events and processes. Instead, one constructs a historical narrative, a story, consisting of a tentative reconstruction of the particular scenario that led to the events one is trying to explain. A lot of lots of big words, but it's really saying what I said earlier on. And my point here is that it's not creationists that just came up with this idea. This is recognised by philosophers of science everywhere. The worldview plays a big role in the way we interpret the evidence. <coughs> maybe you say why is that important? Well, maybe this will help you. So here I have two lines and we all love quiz, so right? So let's choose something. What's missing and how did this look like originally? A, B, C or D? Who thinks the original picture is A? B? No one. C? A few happy faces there? <laughs> D? Okay, quite a few D's. Do you want to know the answer? <laughs> Nothing is missing. You say I trick you. But that's my point, isn't it? Why do you think something is missing? I suggested to you something was missing i asked you a leading question what i did was actually gave you a worldview i said something is missing and to be honest it doesn't matter whether you choose a b c or d all four options are entirely consistent with the two lines but because you have the wrong starting assumption you interpret the evidence coming to the wrong conclusion imagine before i show you the four options i say to you consider the possibility that nothing is missing okay if i say that to you and then i show you the four options would you maybe have chosen something different? Everything's the same, right? So why do you come to a different conclusion now? It's the worldview that interprets the evidence. So in the same way, the world out there says, hey, look at all those rock layers and all the fossils. That's evidence of millions of years of death, disease, suffering, fossil tolls and teasers, human fossils in there. But may I encourage you to train yourself, start with God's word. And those rock layers, the fossils, become evidence of a recent creation, a worldwide flood. And show evidence of death and suffering that occurred after sin had already entered the world. So I'm sure we have all seen documentaries of the Grand Canyon, right? So who has been the Grand Canyon here? So I'm sure you recognize that? All the rock layers and the millions of years there? Wait a minute. What did I just say? (laughs) Okay, when you hear something like that, take a step back, ask yourself what's the evidence, what's the interpretation? So what's the evidence? Rock layers with fossils. What's the interpretation? Millions of years. Take a step back and then to separate that out in your mind. Yes, those are rock layers with fossils. Sedimentary rocks, those are rocks laid down by water. <clears throat> and in those rocks, we find fossils, things that was once alive but now dead. We see things like marine fossils, clams, shellfish, and things like that. So evolution, not many people are aware of this, but most mountain ranges in the world are actually covered with marine fossils, even at the top of Mount Everest evolutionists, they agree. The Mount Everest was once under the ocean. And over millions of years, it's slowly being pushed up. That's why we see the fossils there. But when you start the Bible, can you think of an event for why we see the fossils up there? A worldwide flood. Okay, so, same evidence, but different world will bring you to a different conclusion. But I always say that when you start with the word of God, things begin to make much more sense. So like you say, the Bible tells us that in Psalms 104, that after the flood, the mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place they appointed for them. So after the flood, when the rock layers were still soft, very quickly they are being pushed up. And that's why we see them there today. So how many of us have been to the, seas- the seaside or to the beach? So you've all seen fossil shellfish? When a clam dies, does it remain closed or does it open up? Opens up. And within a few days, the top half is se- separates from the bottom half. So why is it that the vast majority of fossil clams and shellfish are all in a closed position? Is that a clam waiting for millions of years to be buried? Or is that catastrophe? Something that went through burying everything in its path? Just look at that, more shellfish there, all in a closed position. So when you look at a fossil, do not think of millions of years, think of catastrophe and rapid barrier. Like this cartoon says, clam therapy, I wasn't even dead yet. It happened so suddenly it happened to my entire family. I couldn't even open up. <laughs> See, friends, the Bible does tell us that there was a worldwide flood, but it's not only in Genesis. It's also in the New Testament. <clears throat> in Second Peter chapter three, it says this: Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own evil desires. What are scoffers? Unbelievers. People come mocking the Bible. And it continues, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the father fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. All things have been that way. There's no catastrophe, no flood. It has always been that way. And it continues, it says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that heavens existed long ago and and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of this, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In this passage, in Second Peter, it tells us in the last days, scoffers will come along. <laughs> and one of the characteristics is that they will deny the worldwide flood. But notice what it says. They deliberately overlook. What does that mean? If you have to deliberately overlook the flood, it means that with the right starting worldview, you should be able to see evidence of the flood all around us. And we we'll are look at some of that. But when I speak about creation, people say, why must you believe that God created the world in six days? I mean, doesn't it say that a day is a thousand years? Anyone heard of that? <coughs> Where do we get that, that verse from? It's actually just two verses after this. This is what it says. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. Notice, it doesn't say a day is a thousand years. It say a day is as a thousand years. Very very talk It's a metaphor here. But then they stop there. I said, read the rest of the verse. You say, And a thousand years is as a day. You're back to square one. (laughs) Okay, this passage is not even talking about creation days. So what is it talking about? It says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This passage is not talking about creation days. It's talking about the patience of God. God is not willing that any of his people perish, but that they should all reach repentance. You see, in Genesis, there's no such thing as God's time versus man's time. Why? Because God is outside of time. God created time. Right? So when it says in Genesis, there's a light source, evening and morning, rotating earth, one day, evening and morning, that's time on earth. Genesis is talking about time on earth. But remember, what is the context of this passage here? Remember what we just read, two verses earlier on? It's a warning. It's a warning about those who do not believe the word of God. Warning about what? The scoffers who come in the last days, whose characteristics is that they deny the worldwide flood. A day is as a thousand years. That's a warning for those who reject what the Bible says. So how then do you explain all the rock layers and the fossils that we saw earlier on? Let's look at this famous volcano, Mount St. Helens. Okay, so who was around when Mount St. Helens erupted? Okay, so now I know your age. <laughs> okay, it's not that long ago, but when Mount St. Helens erupted, we saw many interesting things happening in a short period of time. The first thing noticed notice is that it's missing its sight because it blew its sight. And when that happened, right, when Mount St. Helens, the events that took place, here is actually a record of this cliff. Three separate events, each taking less than a single day to form. So, the red person in the bottom, that's for scale. You see that? <clears throat> so, when the volcano erupted, the entire first layer was laid down in less than a single day. And one month later, it blew its side. And hot ash and debris ran down the mountainside. And the entire second layer was laid down in just three hours. Three hours. Let's zoom in to this second layer. You see that? You see all the micro laminations? Circular, circular geology textbook will tell you when you see a rock layer with all these lines each must take one year to form this so if we had not seen this happening they will assume this must have taken tens of thousands of years to form But operational science mouse and hell we saw this thing happening when it blew its side, the entire second layer of laid down in just three hours when you have a catastrophe these things form very quickly later on the mud flow went through the area depositing the top layer in less than a single day as well you see how a worldwide flood which the bible says is over a year long would do it all over the earth laying down all these sediments but you say to me you know i've been to the grand canyon okay maybe if there's a catastrophe you get rock layers but i've been to the grand canyon everybody knows that's color colorado river look at the high sides that must have taken millions of years to cover up that canyon does it <coughs> the first thing we need to note is that the river Actually, runs the opposite gradient of the land. So, how did you get something like that forming? Let's get back to Mount St Helens. So, the top layer there was a mud flow that ran through that area. That mud flow actually covered an entire canyon in one single day, and that canyon is known as Little Grand Canyon. Why do you think it's given that nickname? Because Little Grand Canyon is one fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon. friends Mount St Helens is a tiny volcano. Can you imagine what a worldwide flood, which by the way the Bible says takes over one year long, what such a flood would do all over the world? Little Grand Canyon, 140th of the size of the Grand Canyon in one single day. This is Little Grand Canyon. You see the same high sides and the stream that runs through that? Did this river or stream take millions of years to cover up the canyon? Or was the stream what was left after the catastrophe? Do you see how changing your starting worldview changes the way you look at the evidence? In fact, some of these canyons, this is one out of six different canyons that form as a result of the many events that took place at Mount St. Helens. In some of these huge canyons at the bottom, you can even see the striations in the rock. This is hard volcanic rock, igneous rocks, not soft rock. You can see how it's dragging the rocks, cover the entire canyon there. In a short period of time. The key here, lots of water catastrophe, and these things form quickly. But you say to me, okay, so maybe I grant it to you. Rock layers can form quickly, canyons can be covered quickly. But earlier on, you say fossils. Fossils take millions of years to form. But some of you who were here for this morning, you know how fossils form. They cannot really form over millions of years. But if you go to a museum, that's what it says. A dinosaur dies, it sinks to the bottom, and over millions of years, it's slowly being buried. And there's a the rock layers you see there. And one day, due to erosion, the bones are exposed. And that's how you get for yourself a fossil. Can you get a fossil forming that way? I'm sure we've all seen documentaries of the ocean floor. Or maybe you go scuba diving. Is the ocean floor covered with millions of fish waiting to be buried? Why not? It will decay away. It rots away. So how then, can, if you do not believe me, just do an experiment. At home, Freddy the fish. Okay, and when no one's looking, take a few drops of cyanide. Okay, if this happened in the ocean, what will you expect? After a few days, it begins to bloat. It floats to the top. Fish come along, bite at it. Scrips fall to the bottom. Lobsters, scavengers come along. And within a few weeks, nothing is left. So how can you get a fossil forming over millions of years that way? So forensic scientists have done experiments. And here they took a pig carcass and they placed that in deep water, cold water, and low oxygen waters. So you do not expect this to decay that quickly. And this freshly cute pig, you can see they tied down the ropes here, so it will not float away. And then they put a big cage over it, so the big fish and sharks will not eat that. See, they just wanted to see what uh, marine scavengers, like lobsters and shrimps, would do to a pig like this. This next picture I'm going to show you, the same pig seven days later. Do you notice something? This is just for marine scavengers, shrimps, lobsters. This is just seven days. Notice that the bones are scattered, what we call disarticulated. They are scattered about. They don't fall in a nice position. Just seven days. So how can we explain that in a fossil record? We very well preserved, like this marine reptile. Huge creatures. So well preserved. The bones are not scattered about. Is this millions of years? In fact, we know that this is so well preserved, we can even tell you that this is a female. And the reason we know that, it's giving birth. I know some of you ladies here, Your stories of long labor. <laughs> Did that take a million years? <laughs> so we have something like that in Creation Magazine. As I mentioned, the quarterly magazine we produce for evangelism purpose and equipping. You think you can take something like that, go to your kids and say, hey, look, the worldwide flood makes the best explanation for what we see in the fossil record. So how then do you get a fossil so, freddy the fish swimming in the ocean the bible tells us in genesis when the flood started all the fountains of the great deep burst open all this water source from the seas going onto the land so worldwide earthquakes volcanoes tsunamis freddy the fish swimming along and oh no it's buried lots of water rich minerals that's the key lots of water rich minerals in a short period of time right conditions you get for yourself a fossil forming very quickly and that's how we get fossils Like this forming. Here, a fish was buried before it could finish its breakfast. How long does a fish take to eat? But doesn't the fossilization process itself take millions of years? (laughs) Not really. Here, we have um, a teddy bear, a petrified teddy bear from England, Northern England. And this bear was petrified in just three to five months. And I actually have a teddy bear here on the fossil display. You can check it out later. Here, from the very same spring. That's the one on the right you see here. Three to five months. And this is how they make that. See on the left, you can actually see they let the spring, they hang it there, these little things, that's a tiny bath here. They let the spring water drip on it. And within three to five months, the whole thing becomes completely encased in stone. The key here, lots of water, rich minerals, and the right conditions. And in case you're wondering, that's not a real human head. Okay. <laughs> see, in the 1800s, in scientific America, there was... An article about this very same spring. And in those days, they would try to preserve all kinds of carcasses. Cats, fox, dogs, birds, see you see a lobster there. <clears throat> the article at the at the bottom it says about how, in one case, a cat was so completely petrified that when he broke off his head, no organic material was left. The whole thing had actually turned into stone. In fact, in one case, here, here's another one. Here's from the Czech Republic, again in the fossil display there. This is a paper rose, and that curved part at the end—that's a metal wire. How long do you think it took to make this? Two weeks. <coughs> Two weeks. I also have a teddy bear. This one is uh, in my office in Georgia. Two weeks to form. In fact, this teddy bear is actually more petrified than the vast majority of dinosaur bones that you find in the fossil record. So fossils good evidence of the flood. So if you ask me, what's your best evidence from the fossils that, that you like to talk about? I talk about dinosaurs, but what about from the fossil record, like trees and things like that? One of my favourites is what we call polystrate fossils. Anyone heard of polystrate fossils? So what is that? Is this idea, or in some national parks, they call it petrified forests. You may have heard of that term. You have all these rock layers, and they have a tree trunk running through that. And the circular explanation is this. These trees must have been growing in swampy areas, and over a long periods of time, they're slowly being buried. Swampy areas, that's wood. It will have decayed away. And what's interesting, many of these trees, as you you can see, do not have much leaves. Many of them do not have much roots. Sometimes you get small root ball, but that's about it. Many of them do not have bark. So how do we get something like that forming? (coughs) These formations are massive. Huge formations, you can see these. These trees overlapping one another. You can actually match the tree rings at the top and match them at the bottom, and they actually match. They're all deposited at the same time. And what's interesting is one in every few hundred of them is actually found upside down. So how can that be growing in place? How did this form? A mystery for many years until Mount and talents erupted. And when remember it blew its side, the explosive force caused it to blow millions of trees into a nearby lake, Spirit Lake. <coughs> and so they're blown off the ground, that's that's Spirit Lake. You see, because of the force, many of them do not have leaf, they were blown off the ground, they do not have roots. Like I say, sometimes a small root ball. And they float on the water surface. And after a few weeks, they rub against one another and the bark falls to the bottom, forming a low-grade coal. And so after a few months, the root end begins to get waterlogged first. So the root end will sink and it will float in a vertical position. When the whole thing becomes completely waterlogged, it sinks down. Just like that. And it looks like a forest, doesn't it? So here's a picture from, from Spirit Lake. After a few months, you see that? All the trees floating in the vertical position. And then it sinks to the bottom. <clears throat> How do we get this formation? This is a lake, a small lake. But the formations that we see out there, no local flood can be able to explain that. So these trees were not growing in place. Here's a circular geologist. Okay? He believed in evolution and all that. I want you to notice what he says. He says, if one estimate the total thickness of the British coal measures as about 1,000 meters, that's 3,000 feet, the sedimentation, 3,000 feet, with all these trees running through that. He says, we cannot escape the conclusion that sedimentation was at times very rapid indeed. Because if these tree trunks form quickly, the rock layers had to form in an equally short period of time. What kind of a local flood would give you 3,000 feet thick of sedimentation with all these trees running through that, overlapping one another? That's a worldwide flood you're looking at. But what does the Bible say about creation? (coughs) The Bible is very clear. God created the world in six days. So like I say, people come along and say a day is just a thousand years. We already dealt with that. But notice something. The Bible says that God, what was created on the third day? Plants. What was created on the fourth day? Sun, moon, and stars. The Bible says God created a light source on day one. Let there be light but actual sun, moon, and stars that we see today were only created on the fourth day. See, let there be light. First day, there's a light source. There's a rotating earth. There's evening, morning, one day. Right? So if it's just 12 hours, evening and morning, from evening to morning, third day to fourth day, it's just 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark. That's exactly like what we see today, light and dark cycle. Not an issue. But if you try to stretch each day to a thousand years, what happens now? you start with 6,000 years. Where do you get your millions of years from? If you stretch each day to a billion years, now you're in real serious trouble. Why do I say that? You're going to put a billion years between the third day and the fourth day? So your plants are now going without sun, moon, and stars for a billion years. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. This is just one example of how the creation order described in the Bible contradicts the evolutionary order. Just one example. There are at least 24 different contradictions if you look at all the details you cannot reconcile this idea of millions of years and evolution with the bible the bible said there was a real god created the world in six days a real garden of eden adam and eve falling to sin but it doesn't stop there the bible gives us a genealogy a genealogy from the first man adam all the way to the last adam jesus christ the reason why jesus christ had to die a physical death on the cross was because the first man adam brought sin death and suffering into this world, you cannot understand the gospel if you have already rejected the foundation upon which the gospel stands. Without Genesis, why do you need a savior? But the Bible doesn't just give us a genealogy, it gives us a genealogy with numbers. This is very small, you may not be able to see it at the back, but these are the names Adam, Seth, and so on, and these are the age when he has his next son. The Bible gives us a genealogy with numbers. When you have a genealogy with numbers, the age of the father when he is next in line, you cannot have any gaps in between. We know how long it was from Adam all the way to Noah, all the way to Abraham, all the way to Joseph. We know when was the exodus. We know when was the exile. We know when Jesus died on the cross. It's just a matter of adding those numbers up. When you have a genealogy with numbers, you cannot have any gaps. We know that the Bible clearly teaches from Adam to this present day. It's about 6,000 years ago. But if you can't put millions of years before Adam, can we put millions of years before Adam? That doesn't work too. Why do I say that? Try to follow along with me. This takes a bit of thinking, but if you get it, this will be key for you. <laughs> you see, if you believe in Big Bang, the world is 13.7 billion years, I mean the universe. To so draw a timeline, 13.7 billion years. They believe the Earth, 4.5 billion years, and life. Homo sapiens, according to evolution, came in 200,000 years ago. Now they change it to 300,000, but it doesn't make a difference. Timeline, 13.7 billion years. If humans come in 300,000 years ago, homo sapiens, humans are at the very end of this timeline. You follow with me here? If God created the world in 6,000, 6,000 years ago, created the world in six days. Adam and Eve were at the very beginning of this timeline. Okay, so two very different timelines. One at the end, or 6,000 year creation, Adam and Eve at the beginning. Who is right? When Jesus was teaching about marriage in Mark, what did he say? He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus teach that the earth is young. Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Do you see why this is a gospel issue? It boils down to the authority of God's word. The moment you try to put millions of years in, Adam and Eve goes to the very end. It doesn't work. Remember, we already show Adam and Eve, the Bible says, 6,000 years ago. Jesus himself says this, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. but well, it applies to everything else that Jesus says, right? He tells us earthly things don't believe. Why believe the rest? Of what he says. Why believe the resurrection? Why believe that he rose from the dead? And so on. So let's preach the gospel. People say, you know, the Bible says that the gospel is of first importance. So let's focus on the gospel. I say, excellent, let's do that. So let's go to the famous passage on the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul declares the gospel. How does he declare? Thus it's written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The apostle Paul, to preach the gospel, had to go back to Genesis. Notice something, it doesn't say first Adam. It says first man Adam. Adam was not one of 10,000 hominids that evolved out of, of, of Africa. He's the first man that God made special creation out of the dust and they his life into him. So just as the first man Adam became a, a living being, the last Adam became a life giving spirit. See, where does the idea of millions of years come from? does it come from the Bible no it's really an outside idea that's been imposed upon the Bible it's really an outside idea an interpretation of the rock layers and let me say those rock layers contain fossils evidence of things that was once alive but now dead the fossil record we see evidence of things like cancer arthritis broken bones bite marks is that good we are showing you this earlier on where you have a t-rex tooth Embedded in between the two joints of a duck dinosaur, a hedgesaw, and you he actually healed around that tooth. It's suffering. Imagine walking around with this tooth stuck in your bone. It's arthritis. That should tell you something, right? The fossil record is not a record of millions of years. It's mainly a record of something that occurred after sin had already entered the world. It's mainly a record of worldwide flood. If the rock layers mainly a record of worldwide flood, your millions of years just went out the window. It's not there. We had show earlier today that when God created, He created animals to eat one another? No, right? He gave them to eat green plants. They only begin to eat one another after sin entered the world. But you see, if you believe in evolution, you believe that death is actually a good thing because the evolution, the struggle for life from the very beginning of time, death, disease, struggle, it's to man. But the Bible is very clear. Man's action brought death into this world. (coughs) So if you try to put millions of years before Adam, this is what you're really saying. Remember the millions of years come from the rock layers? So you're putting the Garden of Eden. God saw all he had created and was very good. And he placed a garden on top of millions of years of death, disease, and suffering. Is that very good? You see how this undermines the goodness of God. When Jesus was on the cross, what did, he, what did they put on his head? A crown of thorns. Why? The Bible is very clear. In Genesis 3, thorns and thistles came to the world as a result of the fall. Jesus wore a crown of thorns as a symbol. They came to undo the curse that came in through the first Adam. But thorns and thistles, and even human bones, by the way, are found in the rock layers. So are you going to say that Thons and Thistles were there before sin entered the world? Are you going to say there was human death before Adam 6,000 years ago? It doesn't work, right? Evolution, if it's true, always teaches that millions of years on death and suffering came before man. But the Bible is very clear that man's action brought death into this world. See, when i go to churches i ask them how many people believe in evolution sometimes you get a few hands coming up but ask them how many of you believe in millions of years and then many hands come up but people do not realize something the moment you put millions of years in the bible you remember where the millions of years come from the rock layers and death and all that the moment you put millions of years in you have all the same problems there because you always have to put death before the fall and again the famous passage on the gospel it tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death death is not part of this good creation it's an intruder it's an enemy and one day because of what jesus did on the cross he paid the penalty for sins so that those who believe in him one day will rise up with him will live with him forever and the last enemy death itself will be destroyed you want an answer to the problem of evil go to the gospel go back to the book of genesis so one of the big questions we get if god is a god of love why is there so much death and suffering But if you believe in evolution, death is a good thing that leads to the progress of man. So why are you complaining? You believe in Islam, you believe in that Allah created cattle for food. That's death from the beginning. You believe in Buddhism, you believe in Hinduism, you believe in reincarnation. That's a cycle of life and death from the very beginning. Christianity is unique because death is not part of, of this original creation. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, one day death itself will be abolished, will be destroyed. You want to answer the problem of evil. Look to the gospel. Understand what it says in the book of Genesis. See, many well many Christians come out with all kinds of ways of how they can put millions of years into the Bible. I don't have time to go through every single one of, the, of, of these with you. If you have questions, come to me after today. I will answer your questions. But they all share one thing in common. They put millions of years in the Bible. They always put death before sin. And then you undermine the gospel. Here's Frank Ziegler the former president of American 80s. And I want you to notice what he said in this debate. He said the most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know Adam and Eve were never real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a saviour. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. You notice something? These atheists understand the foundation of the gospel better than many professing Christians. If evolution is true, Christianity cannot be true. But I say this the word of God, Christianity is true. Therefore, evolution is not true. At the end of the day, the reason for the cross goes back to what happens in the book of Genesis. So people come along and say, we are a gospel-centered church, we are a gospel-centered church. I always ask them this question. I say, can you really be gospel-centered if you have really undermined the very foundation upon which the gospel stands? Creation is not the gospel, but creation is a gospel issue because it's the foundation of the gospel. So what is the authority? Is it the word of God? Then let us train ourselves to start with God's word and then look at the signs around us. Jesus said this, For if you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Here Jesus is taking authority on the inerrancy and the infallibility of the books of Moses. If there are mystics in Genesis, what are you going to do with Jesus? So let's get back to what we said earlier on. Studies find that the main reason people abandon their Christian upbringing, the biggest excuse, is unanswered intellectual questions. And we see that two in three kids who grew up in church, if they're not taught to defend the faith, they leave the church never to return. So people say, creation that's just a side issue. But let me ask you this. If I have three kids and two of them are going to live the faith, because of this very issue, and I do nothing to train them, equip them to defend the faith. Is that really a side issue? These two in three kids, these only refer to other people's kids, right? Not my kids. You see what I'm saying here? Let's get back to our friends. What about millions of years? What about fossils? What about dinosaurs? Imagine now Johnny has their answers, and Johnny says, hey, come, let, let me show you from the Bible. Do you think his witnessing will be more effective? And not only that, he will not be stumbled by those very same questions. See, there's a spiritual battle out there. And in every spiritual battle, we need weapons. Spiritual weapons. In this case, it revolves around this whole issue of creation and evolution because it boils down to the authority of God's word. So I hope you do not mind me being a little bit practical. But if you come in you see all those books at the back, why do you think we bring the books? Before I joined creation ministry, I helped as a volunteer for many years. I did not understand this. I used to think that we fund our ministry by selling books. That's not the main way we fund our ministry. We are mainly funded by people who come alongside our donors who allow us to go to churches to give talks. So why then do we bring the books? You see, I fly every two weeks. I'll be flying somewhere giving talks like like this. I came from Georgia. All those books, that's one pallet of books that we have to ship up here. We fly up here. Everything that doesn't sell, we send it back. That costs us money. So why do that? Because we understand one thing. If you go to libraries, you go to schools, will you ever find books about creation? No. So how are you going to equip yourself? That's the heart of our ministry. Evangelism, equipping. That's why we bring the books. So that you guys can say, yes, this is what I'm going to use. Equip myself to reach my kids. So that, that statistic I saw earlier on, doing and three kids, that will not happen to my family. See, this is not about me. I don't make any commission on any of this, okay? I'm fully employed by creation ministries. This is not about creation ministries. This is not about me. This is about you and your families. Okay, this is about the kingdom of God, about your church, about making a difference. So we produce over 700 resources. We bring down the best. People say that's still too much. Um, what should I start? I say start with Creation Magazine. This is a quarterly magazine, as I explained earlier on. No advertising in that, because we want this to be purely focused on the task of evangelism and equipping, written for, for families, so it's easy to understand. Glossy magazine. Um, so one of the things that's in Creation magazine, people like to ask about radiometric dating, right? Ever wonder about that? How do you explain that? <coughs> Let's get back to this. What's that? Mount and Helens, right? So a few years after the volcano erupted, a new lava dome formed at the top. So that's a little cone that you see here. That's new rock. So we know how old this sample is. So they took a sample of this rock in the center and they sent it to a lab to be tested. Um, we used potassium argon. That's what they used to test igneous rocks, volcanic rocks. How old do you think tested to be? 350,000 years. Okay, and then they took this rock, they grind it up, they, they separate the different minerals. And Felspar gave us 340,000 years but they try a different mineral and give them 900,000 years. Another one, 1.7 to 2.8 million years. This is all from the same rock. We know how old this sample is. At the time of testing, how old do you think it was? Less than 10 years old. It doesn't work. That's Mount St. Helens, right? That's the one you see at the top. Mount St. Helens, eruption date, time of testing less than 10 years. Give us, up to 2.8 million years. We tried it on other volcanoes in Hawaii. Each sample we know, 200-year-old sample, give us anywhere from zero to 3.3 billion years. Now I'm going to show you a whole list of volcanoes. On the left side, the volcanoes with the age of of the eruption. Some 50 years, some 200, some 1,000 years. On the right side, you're going to see the radiometric dates in millions of years. Over and over again. Every single case Every single case we test rocks of known ages, it gives us the wrong dates. Look at this last one from New Zealand. Sample, 25 to 50 years old, gave us 3.5 million. Okay? Keep in mind that because that's the one at the top here. Okay, 3.5 million. This is potassium argon. What if we test a rock using a different radiometric method? Let's try a different method, shall we? It gave us 133 million years. Try another one. 197 million years. Let's try another one again, lead to lead. 3.9 billion years. The different methods don't even agree with one another. <laughs> the actual age, this one, 3.9 billion and that, is more than 70 million times different. So we have this in the magazine. If all rocks of known ages give us the wrong dates, what makes you think it, ro- it works on rocks of unknown ages? Okay, you may not be able to explain the complicated mathematics and, and physics, but you can take a magazine, that, that chart like that, go to your kids and say, hey, look, start the Word of God. It makes more sense than what they're trying to do here. Okay, so that's in Creation Magazine. We make things easy to understand. So it's a quarterly magazine. If you pay for it today, if you want to subscribe for it, we send you, you get the first issue today, and we'll mail the, the rest to you. We get to the office, we will send you a link uh, where you can download a digital version of this magazine. This, this used to be $19 for digital, but we include that together. And this digital version, you can send the magazine to your kids, your families, up to five people. Send it to your kids who are struggling with this. Send it to your colleagues, your friends. Use you that to share the gospel with them. And the magazine that you subscribe to, once you're done with it, don't keep it at home. Give it to someone. Use that stepping stone to share the gospel. Because remember, that's the purpose we make this resource. In between those months, because the quarterly magazine we send you money, periodicals, updates... So you get the first issue today, and a free digital version, he'll share five people for one year subscription. If you get two years, you get those two things. You're gonna put a third one. This is a $19 documentary, Charles Darwin's trip to Galapagos Islands. So we take you down to Charles Darwin's trip to Galapagos Islands We follow his journey. And we ask this question, if Charles Darwin was alive today, would he still be an evolutionist or a creationist? We deal with natural selection, mutations, speciation, and so on. And the fourth one, it's a DVD that used to be $10. That's a 4 up project. So that's the one where we interview the students, right? Hear them in their own words for why they left the church. And in the second half of the DVD, go through the objections one by one, answering those questions. So that's Creation Magazine. So if you're interested in it, uh, volunteers can hand out the sign-up sheets. Take this form, fill in your details, and bring this form to the book tables. When you pay for it, you'll get your free gifts. Okay, The free gifts are not available online. It's only when you go out of ministry. So again, creation magazine, should, eh, creation magazine should be the first thing you look at. After that, Creation Answers book, as I explained. Top 60 questions, Creation Evolution, 20 chapters. Look at the back page. There's a 20 chapters there. Dinosaurs, Distance, Starlight, Continental, Drift, Ice Age, um, How do get animals get to Australia, Where did Cain get his wife? All in that one volume. Refuting Evolution, we saw over half a million copies, dealing with High School Evolution, Bird Evolution, Whale Evolution. And then there's this one. Uh, a DVD similar to the talk you have here today. Anyone do homeschooling here? Or, you know, you have kids for upper elementary? Okay, you might want to look at this. Exploring Geology with Mr. Heap. There's also one on Exploring Dinosaurs. Designed for upper elementary and above. There's activities you can do in there as well. A lot of the cartoons that you see are actually from these two books. The Geology and the Dinosaur one. What's the best DVD we have? This one, best DVD of all time, in my opinion. Evolution Aculis Hill. Want two movie awards, Christian movie awards, 15 PhD scientists, high school and above, but it's best evidence against evolution in one volume. And if you'd like to read a book, it comes as a book as well. But my recommendation, look at the DVD first in this case. What about ape man? What about um, Neanderthals? Lucy, ever wonder about that? Very high quality documentary, highly recommended as well. This was in the cinema last year. And it has a book if you want to go into the nitty gritty details. The, book, the most comprehensive book on the topic from the creation perspective, best commentary on Genesis I've read. I think, in my opinion, every major commentary on Genesis this is by far the best. Genesis one to eleven by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, over eight hundred pages, just under eight hundred pages, dealing with science, theology, and church history, and the theological discussions is what really, to me, what makes this a very good commentary. And we went through this, and we actually took, um, yeah, um, we actually took two years, our scientists, to go through this, take the best parts out of this. And we converted that into 12 45-minute teaching session. Good for homeschooling. Good for using at a Sunday school. We designed this for Sunday school use. Play this; it's easy to understand. Can download questions that they can answer as they watch. So these are the best resources I would recommend. Again, before I look at all that, please look at Creation Magazine. This is me and my daughter in our home in Georgia. See, friends, there are answers to all these questions, but most people only hear one side of the story. So my friend, um, okay, just give me one minute more. Okay. They, they asked, to they say, you know, how can I reach my campus of 20,000 people who have a negative view of God, religion, and Christianity? You know me here on a Sunday, one, two hours? I cannot do that. Do you know who can? Remember what I said, this is not about me. It's about you and your families. If everyone would ask me a commitment, yes, I would train myself, equip myself to reach out to my families, my friends, my church we can reach the world for Christ. So I hope you enjoyed this. I'll be at the back answering questions. Check out the fossils as well. I'll end off with this one verse. If you forget everything I mentioned, I know it's a lot. If you forget everything, I want you to remember this commandment, this challenge in the Bible. Train yourself, equip yourself to be able to cast down imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing to captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Thank you. dismissed. Uh, Thank you for coming. Um, Check out the table. Um, Have a good Sunday.